It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. All right. Welcome to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. Oh, yeah. Now, if you download the iHeartRadio app, you can listen on that. We are now on the iHeartRadio program and uh, app, so it's wonderful to be there. Welcome to you, our listeners. If you are listening on one of the other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth, we welcome you, as well as if you're listening on one of your favorite podcast platforms and or on our SoundCloud. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today uh, two people that were involved, again, with the 1-9 film that we talked about uh, with two other people that were involved with this film that was made during the pandemic, which premiered on the Female Eye Film Festival. And that is uh, March 26th, 27th, and 28th that we talked about that before. So it's a pleasure to have with us here on the show. We have Ingrid Veninger, as well as Jennifer Podemski, two other of the filmmakers, as well as Ingrid, who is the executive producer of this as well. So it's a pleasure to have them both here on the show. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Now, a little bit more about both of you and your films. Ingrid, you did a film called Birth, and uh, you did that with your 28-year-old daughter. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But if I can just uh, say a little bit more about Ingrid, she is uh, she holds an MFA from York University, my old school. And uh, she has been a, a tenure-track faculty member at AMPD, which is the School of Arts, Media, Performance, and Design since 2000. 2019. She was born in Bratislava and raised in Canada, and she formed Punk Films, Inc. with a Nothing is Impossible manifesto. And since 2008, she has produced 11 feature films. Ingrid received the WIFS International Visionary Award, the Alliance of Women Films Journalist EDA Award for Best Director, and the J. Scott Prize Award by the Toronto Film Critics Association, and she is a member of the Directors Guild of Canada. So it's a pleasure to welcome Ingrid to the show. Jennifer Podemski, you may know that name. She is a director, writer, producer, and actor. She was born and raised in the Toronto area, and she makes her home in Barrie, Ontario at this point. And she is of mixed background, both Anishinaabe and Ashkenazi, a Jewish descent. And Jennifer's professional acting career began when she was 17. She had the breakout role as Sadie in Bruce McDonald's iconic film, Dance Me Outside, a performance that garnered critical acclaim, solidifying her place in Canada's film and television canon. And in 1999, Jennifer shifted her focus to producing as a way of addressing the lack of Indigenous representation in film and television in the industry. And she launched Big Soul Productions with Laura Milliken and... uh, That became Canada's first Indigenous-owned and operated full-service film and television production and post-production company. Big Salt Productions produced a variety of documentary film, series, scripts, short films, and the award-winning multi-season all-Indigenous dramatic television series, Moccasin Flats, for Showcase Television and APTN. So it is a pleasure, as I say, to welcome both Jennifer and, uh, and Ingrid to the show. Now, as I mentioned off the top, Ingrid, did a, this short film in this one nine, which is one film with nine films within it that we talked about, uh, and and they're 
represented from not only Canada, but right across the world. And um, as I mentioned, we did do interviews with uh, Carmen Sanjan, and she's from South, she was from South, South Africa, and her film was called Uncertainty. And we also did, along with that, G- uh, Lydia Zimmerman, and she was from Spain, and she did Encounter. So it's a pleasure now to uh, fill out this interview with the films from both Ingrid and Jennifer. And, you know, it's interesting, as I was reading over the notes for both your films there's kind of a, a similarity in in the approaches that you guys took in terms of involving your families with both your films and I, I thought that was quite interesting so uh, why don't we start with with Ingrid Ingrid um, your film birth um, you had some plans as of course uh, Jennifer you had plans uh, before COVID hit you both had things and plans that were that were scuttled because of what went on last year and continues to happen now of course so Ingrid do you want to take us through a little bit of what what happened there with with your plans and then how this this film birth became uh, birthed <laughs> Yeah, sure. I I actually would like to take us back um, to exactly one year ago. Mm. On March 14th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Mm. And I have in front of me an email dated March 20th, 2020 at 3.01 p.m. And... I like I get emotional thinking about this because Jennifer was one of the first filmmakers I emailed. Mm. And I, I feel like I want to read this email because no one's ever sort of um, really heard how this all started. And mm. so I'm going to read this email I sent to Jennifer on this day at 3.01 p.m., almost exactly one year ago. I was going to start diving into my next feature film, but my heart is pulling me in a different direction towards co-creation. I'm following my heart and reaching out to you first. I'm thinking of a creative collaboration, exquisite corpse style, 10 by 10 in 2020, 10 filmmakers, 10 minute pieces. There could be parameters. Maybe we shoot one day, one location, natural lighting, lo-fi. We could decide together, create our own manifesto, We could create a a timeline that could happen in the next three, four weeks. We we could transition from one piece to another, one filmmaker to another, via an Instagram live story or FaceTime or phone call or text, the way we are all communicating in these days. There is a very real context of COVID-19, but we could involve different themes, family, friends, love, death, fear, privacy, presence, identity, courage, panic, uncertainty and more we would make this fast raw now i'd like to involve five canadian filmmakers and five international 10 total is the ideal for a 100 minute ish piece something that could be projected on a wall on a screen put online for free no goals to sell or generate revenue to make to share that's the goal i could take responsibility for post that's the small stuff big stuff is i want to reach out to you first might you be interested in something like this? So I sent that email March 20th, 2020 at 3.01 p.m. Jennifer responds at 3.17 and says, hey, Ingrid, I love this idea. Count me in. Hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, 
Thank you for sharing that because that really does speak to uh, when we when we speak with Jennifer about her film and receiving that email and and accepting that and saying I'm in uh, and then what happened after that it was very interesting to read her notes on on what she went through after that so thank you for sharing that you know it also speaks to the fact that um, both uh, both Carmen and and uh, um, Leslie or uh, Lydia both addressed that as well in terms of how it started out with the ideas you talked about 10 filmmakers originally and then the idea of some of the parameters that might be set up so uh, thank you for for sharing that would you, would I, mean, you I think you know that's the parameters and all of that is kind of you know the the mechanical part of it really the the heart center is you know Jennifer turning around and saying yes mm. count me in to something that's not only uncertain, but in a time when we were all completely reeling. Mm. And that faith and that courage and that leap into just saying yes completely got the ball rolling. I mean, I think had Jennifer said no, mm. I'm not sure that one nine would exist mm. because her yes gave me confidence to ask the next woman and then the Mm. next one and then in between when there were women that said no I mean you know clearly people were just overwhelmed with life and taking on a project committing to something was was you know (laughs) seemed ridiculous at the time um the no's I got in between were 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 fine but that first yes um just I, I can't I can't even describe the feeling it was it was incredible. So thank you, Jennifer. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have, a lot to, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> Go. <laughs> okay. So I, I do obviously remember um, taking, uh, getting the email and I was in a really dark place at that time. It had been like, what did you say the day was the 20th? Yeah. So I had been home from shooting my, my own series that I was um, doing uh, for like five days or four days. And I spiraled pretty quickly into like, just, I guess, you know, in film and television, because we're so, we work so hard and so fast on projects. We always have this like coming down thing that happens when you finish a project and you usually go into a very dark place. Sometimes it's depression. Sometimes it's just exhaustion. You know, you're overcome by, like all of these emotions and sometimes you cry for days. This is a normal thing for filmmakers and people in this industry, you know? Um, So I was there and then the pandemic and then, you know, my kids and my husband and just everything. And I kind of was at the fate at the phase of my journey four days in that I was going to quit the business. (laughs) And I got this email and I, cause I love Ingrid. I admire her so much. Watched her on TV growing up, saw her like followed her whole career. She's, She's very supportive of me and I've always wanted to work with her and just, I bawled my eyes out. I think I probably bawled my eyes out for, if you got it at 301, if you sent it at 301 and I got it, at, I answered at 317, then I probably cried for 16 minutes. Um, and I, I remember it very clearly. And I just said, you know what? I am, this is a message from creator, even though it's Ingrid, it's, <laughs> it's coming through Ingrid and it's asking me to say yes to something that's unknown and exciting and 
you know, everything that's opposite of what I'm feeling right now. Cause I had no idea. And then, you know, weeks went by where we, I, I probably told you 10 times, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to talk about. I'm so lost. So yeah, the journey began with that, with that. Yes. But that's, you know, the, the famous or the, the age old kind of philosophy of saying yes and being open to receiving the rewards that come after. So yeah, it's been a journey. So proud of this film. <laughs> you are listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and also now on the iHeart Radio app. My guests here on the show today are Ingrid Venninger. She is the executive producer of One Nine. She's also one of the filmmakers. Also with us here on the show is Jennifer Podemski, and she is one of the filmmakers is included in One Nine. One Nine premiered at the Female Eye Film Festival. Thank you both for, for sharing those thoughts. Now, Ingrid, you, you are wearing the two hats as executive uh, producer as well as a filmmaker. So um, you, you set up the idea of, of, you know, why you wanted to do this to some degree in terms of reaching out to these women and, and Jennifer specifically first. Why did you think it was necessary, though, to, to put something like this together at that time? I mean, it's about community isn't it especially when we're so isolated uh the only thing that made sense to me was making something with other women i was curious about how we were coping in different parts of the world what our perspectives were how we got to where we are um how how these artists uh that i'd never really worked with before were dealing with their families, with their rage, with their confusion, with... Ultimately, I was looking for a lifeline. I think that many times these kinds of collaborations generate an energy and a, and a fuel and a fire that ignites me and gives me hope in terms of feeling like creating things, making things is worthwhile. And I, I turn to my community for that oftentimes. So I turn to these incredible women and you know it was important to us that there was no single author that we were co-authoring that we were telling our individual stories but collectively you know I don't think if any one of us was commissioned to make a short film at that time I'm not sure we would make these films hmm. these films were born out of this collective and we wanted to make something together that we could not make on our own. And it was important to us that we, you know, we trusted each other. That was kind of a vow we took that we would trust each other. We would trust ourselves and be, be courageous and making films at the same time through the months of April, May, 2020 were really important, but we also decided we weren't going to share what we were making with each other. Mm. The element of surprise <laughs> was also very vital. So timeline schedule kind of guided us and when we delivered our rough cuts it was the first time we saw what the other was making and it was kind of like wow there was this there was a, a magic because there were threads and themes and resonances mm -hmm. that were completely <clears throat> unplanned right so somehow we were connected subconsciously mm -hmm. and did you have an outlet for the finished product at that time 
No, not at all. I mean, we were immersed in a kind of process and we did not know what the result was going to be. We knew it was going to be finished. Um, we had a supervising editor, Rick Bartram. We had a colorist and sound designer and Deluxe in Toronto had, had stepped up to help us with posts that was all done remotely. Um, but we had no idea what the platform was. We always hoped it would be some kind of film festival. And again, we made these films with our family members as cast and crew <laughs> in our basements and bedrooms and backyards, places we were isolating. So we thought, well, if it ends up online, that's perfect. Mm. Because and if it ends up online and is accessible to people for free around the world, that's perfect because we made these films with a zero budget. Right. Uh, you mentioned the remoteness of this in terms of, you know, the post and, and all of that kind of thing. How... How was that going through that process? And is that something that you would consider again now that we've all been exposed to these different kinds of working conditions? Do you see changes that you both went through or now see that might be now incorporated moving forward into future film projects as a, as a norm? Jen, what do you think? Oh man, I would do it so differently what I did. I... I feel like I kind of came out of the darkness in uh, like maybe November or October and not related to this film, but just the process of what I was experiencing throughout this, like how difficult um, the challenges of parenting and homeschool and work and career and hormonal changes, (laughs) (laughs) all of the things. So I'm, I feel so much more equipped to produce stuff like you know I'm a, I'm a very a type you know like you Ingrid I could have 10 projects on the go at one time and really not blink an eye I mean yes yeah, things fall fall through the cracks often but um that's where I'm my most comfortable and I'm there again at that time I was like I don't know if I can handle this one short film like I don't even know if I can do this mm. you know thank goodness my my husband is a you know videographer and and editor because I I don't think I would have been able to even even though this is what I do I just didn't know what to do it was really yeah, weird it was, it was such an overwhelming overwhelming time I mean it was like the ground was shifting every 30 seconds and information was coming in and we didn't know what um, was happening. So to be creating in context of that, and it is cool. I mean, you co-wrote with your son. Mm -hmm. I co-created with my daughter. Our pieces are so family-centered, right? And we never spoke about that. No, that's crazy. We have very similar films. Yeah, very similar. And I guess... You know, lifting off your first question, um, David, in terms of of birth, I mean, it was spring. Um, It felt like there was so much death and suffering, and yet nature was just kind of carrying on, (laughs) and it felt so surreal. Um, My daughter, you know, was celebrating the first birthday of her daughter. We were three three generations of women, isolated together and she imagined a very different kind of birthday for her first you Mm. know this first milestone it was going to be full of friends and family and a big celebration and it was really really the opposite um so 
we decided to, you know, make something together. It's the first time her little baby was, was on screen. And I really wanted to, to have this intimate portrait, um, you know, live as a kind of testament to parenting and parenting in a time that was and continues to be incredibly challenging. And I wanted birth to speak to love and fear and isolation and grief and courage and resilience and strength because I am so in awe of people that are juggling young families and work and their relationships and sustainability and you know in this in this birth chapter the father is a frontline healthcare worker so there's there's also that and ultimately the film is is dedicated to frontline healthcare workers mm. how did it how did it go for you jen well i mean i was you know that i was struggling with what to talk about like i didn't feel i was i was up against a lot of uh, self doubt during this entire time and it was so interesting because i um you know, I had a lot of ideas and things that I wanted to say, but what I was really wrestling with was, you know, who am I as a storyteller? And the kind of work that I often, well, that I always do is always like really um, anchored in Indigenous sort of um, perspective. And I had this opportunity to sort of take away that layer, even though it is very gently layered in there. Um, I just wanted it to be, you know, a real a real story that had no sort of uh, forced cultural textures. I wanted it to just exist in the, you know, in the life of this child. Um, you know, we did talk about adding in cultural elements, which I kind of battled with. And it, it's amazing, just my journey doing this little film. And it isn't even like, you know, it's like six minutes long. Um, you know, the journey of healing for me that happened sort of, as a parallel experience to this film um, was really amazing. And it was actually at the time when I was like, okay, I got to get this done because it's going to be due soon. So um, I, I want to pitch out a few ideas. And my son was like, you know, cause I've been talking a lot about this bear that he had. And um, we've talked a lot about spirit and my son, you know, has a lot of stories of his own about seeing, you know, seeing spirits and things like that. Um, so he kind of crafted this narrative through the boys, a young boy's eyes around, um, this, you know, lonely journey. Originally it was called lonely boy. That was what he called it, but it ended up being called spirit because that's really what it is. It's about, you know, our connection to spirit during our, uh, as a, as an anchor of hope rather than an anchor of sadness, you know, and that to me is, is my indigenous thread is my Anishinaabe thread of how we connect to spirit. Um, and, you know, in the, the other textures of the mom working and I broke, I broke rules. I broke lots of rules. Like, you know, it was very, it's supposed to be very, I wanted it to be very meandery. And once you get into filming, you know, with a lot of cuts and a lot of, I don't know, it just doesn't work to, to capture the loneliness and the, that pace that we were all in, we felt like we were in like quicksand. So nothing worked. So my husband put the camera on a, I don't know, a gimbal or something. And I just said, you know, just follow him. Just like 
follow him, follow the boy and let it feel like as boring and lonely and mundane and meandering as he feels. So there was, yeah, that's just part of it. It is amazing how a little six minute film can elicit so much uh, emotional um, upheaval. Yeah. And really a, a key thing was that, you know, we were accountable to each other. I mean, you spoke, you spoke about having to deliver. I think that was, we had this incredible freedom in making our chapters. We knew that they were going to be sequenced as a cohesive whole. And that's how we were going to present it to people. We were all making films at the same time and we had to deliver. So whereas maybe if I was completely on my own, I don't know if I would have finished anything, you know, but there was this promise we made to each other. We were going to deliver our rough cuts our fine cuts our picture locks and that accountability and that responsibility Again, when you're a part of a community, uh, creates this culture of like, okay, no excuses. I mean, it's it, we're all in, all together. And if one of us, in fact, one filmmaker did um, bow out at the rough cut stage, they didn't have their film ready, and all of us agreed collectively, okay, then we have to continue without them because that was our kind of spine. Mm. Um, again, we had freedom, but we were committed to. Uh, a, a sort of schedule and that kept us on track and that was really important we took it so seriously and Jennifer your film the the opening sequence um, I, I thought wow where are they <laughs> he's not your husband I, I'm assuming it was your husband on a beach yeah. somewhere a family holiday or something that you incorporated in there is that yeah that was our our most recent Florida trip mm. um, and it was it was just like it was my way of sort of authentically including uh, a memory, mm, right, of, right, of the dad. Can I ask a question just really fast? Because yep. I feel like this is asked of me. I teach at York University, and oftentimes people say, what is it like to act in something you're, you direct? Mm. And there's some really vulnerable, raw, intimate moments in your piece. I mean, when you're bawling your eyes out in the shower and you're directing yourself. So... Do you say, okay, this is how I want the camera, and then you get in the shower, and then you give yourself a moment, and you cry, and then how many times do you do that? What, directing yourself. Can you talk about that a little bit, David? Do you mind? Because I think that it's a pretty fascinating aspect of, of Jennifer's piece. No, not at all. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, though. I'll make it fast. Um, so I guess that, that particular scene, I mean, I've been in weird situations uh, like that, um, several times, but this one was so intimate and with my husband. So it was a little bit more comfortable, but I basically just said like, this is what I'm looking for. So I'm going to go there, just wait till I get to that place and, you know, get this, this, and this shot, like everything except my, you know, private parts, but just like close and big and tight and whatever, all the different, all the different varieties, because I probably can't get to this place, you know, again, if we do it too many times, there's a limited amount of capacity for me to get to that kind of thing. I was surprised that it came very easily to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then I would stop and like wipe my tears. Like, okay, okay. You know, um, get it a little bit tighter. Or, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to face this way. Let me do it this way and, and mm. get my hands. <laughs> and then I would just do, start crying again. But, you know, we're as actors, we're used to that, right. um, you know, stopping and starting constantly. Um, it's difficult, but, um, and then as directors, you know, it's, uh, I guess you really need a shorthand, I think, with the person who's, who's shooting it. 
I think that's the safest place to be. Mm-hmm. It's been such a pleasure to have you both on the show. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join us and, and be here with us on Element FM. And all the best in the future as you take on new projects and come out of this COVID-19 situation. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. They are the voices of Jennifer Podemski and Ingrid Venger as we were talking to them about their involvement in the 1-9 film. And 1-9 premiered at the Female Eye Film Festival on the Tiff Bell Lighthouse Digital Theatre. And Ingrid Venger was not only one of the filmmakers, she was also the executive producer of 1-9 as well. That's our show for this portion of Moment of Truth. Don't go away. We'll be back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and of course, anywhere across the country if you download not only the uh, Radio Player Canada app, but also now on iHeartRadio as well. It's a pleasure to welcome all those listeners on both iHeart and Radio Player Canada app, but also any of those listeners that are listening on other radio stations stations that now carry Moment of Truth, and also to those people that might be listening on your favorite podcast platform, and and you can also listen on our SoundCloud as well. Well, today on the show, we have a very special show to begin with, and uh, I'm just being handed a package right now, folks. I've just been delivered a package, and we're going to be dealing with that package in a moment because it has to do with the Code Burt Awards, and we're going to be giving away some books a little bit later on. But first of all, I want to tell you a little bit and introduce you to some people that we're going to be dealing with on the show today, and it's a pleasure to have them with us here. So, the Code Burt Awards for First Nations Inuit and Métis Young Adult Literature. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about the the Burt Award program. And it is a a great storytelling program about promoting reading Indigenous authored literature. The authors that uh, we are featuring today have written stories from many different perspectives and include characters of different ages who face different challenges in their lives. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about the importance of storytelling, and especially for young adults and youth young adults. And storytelling is an essential part of our culture and our heritage. And uh, young people have a huge selection, actually, of books that can reflect on different cultures, histories, and genres of storytelling from novels to poetry to graphic novels and everything in between. And I'd now like to introduce you to one of the people we have on the show, and that is Nancy Cooper. And Nancy has been involved with the Bird Award program since 2018. She has helped coordinate the jury and selection committee and has uh, supported the Bird Award program. And Nancy is from the Chippewas of Rama First Nation. She also comes from the Potawatomi and from the Irish background of people. She works with 45 First Nations and public libraries throughout Ontario and is a consultant at the Ontario Literary Service. She's also a writer and the author of Trading uh, the Trading Tree. And Nancy, it is a pleasure to have you here on the show and also to ask you to tell us, please, something about this wonderful award program. 
Oh, miigwech, David. Um, it's really, really great to be here from Toronto. Um, so I'm really happy to be able to join you with two of our winners of the Code Bird Award. Uh, we're here to celebrate Indigenous literature with you and your listeners. Um, Code is an organization that's hosted this awards program since 2013. CODE is an international literacy organization based here in Canada that for over the past 60 years has dedicated itself in advancing literacy and education in the world's greatest places of need. In Canada, this means um, presenting First Nations Inuit and Métis youth with stories that speak to the variety of Indigenous cultures past, present, and future. These stories are also important tools for educators who seek to inspire a love of reading and learning in young people. The Code Bird Award came from the vision, collaboration, and generous support of a Canadian philanthropist, William Bill Burt, and the Literary Prizes Foundation, along with the close collaboration and input from the Assembly of First Nations, the Métis National Council, the Inuit Tapirit Kanatomi, the National Association of Friendship Centers, the Association of Canadian Publishers, the National Reading Campaign, GoodMinds.com, book distributors, and Frontier College. And of course, all the authors and their publishers that made these great stories possible. Mr. Burt passed away in 2018, and the Consecon Foundation continued to fund the program until 2020, and we're so grateful for this support. Yeah, absolutely. So I understand that each year, the Bird Award Program awards three prizes to eligible authors, illustrators, and translators. Publishers submit three books and a jury of Indigenous readers who have knowledge and understanding of young adult literature, literacy, education, and publishing read and select the three best. Then the authors receive a cash prize, and Code also purchases 2,500 copies of each book, which are then donated to schools, libraries, community centers, and friendship centers that serve Indigenous youth across the country. That's great. Yeah, and usually the award ceremony is held at a school in a community. The last one was presented at Kitigan-Zibi, and um, it was pretty awesome. All the kids came, and they were so stoked to be meeting the authors uh, of the winning books that year, uh, including Richard Van Camp and Shri Demelin. Mm. Um, so they have all kinds of writing workshops, presenters, the teachers, and the students get to go from workshop to workshop. And we have just a lot of fun celebrating Indigenous storytelling with the authors and the young people. Uh, but because of COVID, thank you very much, COVID, we can't gather in person. And so we're here to celebrate on the radio with you. Yeah, we are. And uh, so we welcome uh, you all to the Code Burt Award for First Nations, Métis and Inuit Young Adult Literature, Literature Ceremony. And, um, you know, I guess at some point we, we might want to have a, a drum roll, right, if they were going to be doing something like this. And Nancy, you're here to do the honors and announce the uh, winning books. And uh, we weren't able to have all of the authors with us today, but we do have two special guests with us. And the, we'll hear from them very soon and have been holding off announcing their names to you. Nancy, you're going to, it's going to, your honor to please uh, announce that. Exactly. Thank you. It is my honor. Um, and maybe you could hold a uh, dig into your package. And oh, yes. Look, look up. up. Uh, I have this package in and there. Open it up. 
Yeah, that could be our drum roll, the <laughs> package opening. Um, so it's my honor to be able to announce the first award, the honor book in the English language category for the 2020 Code Bird Award for First Nations Inuit and Métis Young Adult Literature is the case of Windy Lake by Michael Hutchinson. It is published by Second Story Press. It is the Indigenous version of Hardy Boys, and it's awesome. The Case of Windy Lake is book one in the Mighty Muskrats mystery series. This is a fantastic adventure story featuring the Mighty Muskrats, who won't let a mystery go unsolved. One of the only books for middle school readers with Indigenous sleuths. We meet Sam, Otter, Tim, and Chickadee, four inseparable cousins growing up on the Windy Lake First Nation. Nicknamed the Mighty Muskrats for their habit of laughing, fighting, and exploring together, the cousins find that each new adventure adds to their reputation. The plot of this story focuses on a visiting archaeologist who goes missing, and the cousins decide to solve the mystery of his disappearance. In the midst of community conflict, family concerns, and environmental protests, the four get busy following every lead. From their base of operations in a fort made out of an old school bus, the mighty muskrats don't let anything stop them from solving their case. Students and teachers will really, really love this book. And Michael has uh, subsequently published a second and third um, story in this series. Hmm. I can tell you a little bit about Michael now, if you'd like. If you would like to, absolutely, please. Sure. He's the author of the book. You may remember him from uh, his APTN days. I think he was on APTN oh, yeah. a bit. Yep. He's a citizen of the Mississippiwatistic Cree Nation and Treaty 5 territory north of Winnipeg. As well as being the author of the Mighty Muskrat series, he works in communications for the Assembly of First Nations in Ottawa, which advocates for First Nation families and communities across Canada. He says his greatest accomplishments are his two lovely daughters. <laughs> Nancy, uh, could you please tell us about the next award? Sure. <laughs> I'm pleased to announce the second award, which is the winner in the English language category, Moccasin Square Gardens by Richard Van Camp. It is published by Douglas and McIntyre. This is Richard Van Camp's most hilarious short story collection. It's also haunted by the lurking presence of the Weetigo, and those who know about the Weetigo know to be very scared. The Uitigo is a human devouring monsters of legends that have returned due to global warming and the greed of humanity. The characters of Moccasin Square Gardens inhabit Denede, the land of the people north of the 60th parallel. These stories are filled with in-laws, outlaws, and common laws. <laughs> Drawing from oral history techniques to perfectly capture the character and texture of everyday small town. This collection of stories functions as a meeting place for an assortment of characters from shamans and time-traveling goddess warriors to pop culture obsessed pencil pushers to con artists, archivists, and men who just need to grow up, all seeking some form of connection. 
Nice. So congratulations to Richard Van Camp. And Richard is a proud member of the Teco Dene from Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. And he's an internationally renowned storyteller and best-selling author. He has written and published more than 20 books and 20 years of writing from baby board books to young adult fiction to novellas and novels. Two of his books have been made into films, including... The Lesser Blessed, and the graphic novel Three Feathers, which was released in 2018. And Richard lives in Edmonton, Alberta, with his family. And if you ever get a chance to hang out with Richard, do it, because he will keep you in stitches. Nice. He has, like, a million stories. (laughs) So great. That's fabulous. Um, (laughs) And finally... Yeah. Drum roll, please. We have the winning book in the Indigenous language category. And we're thrilled to have both the author and the translator of the book with us today. Mm-hmm. I'm pleased to announce that the winning book is Inconvenient Skin by Shane Coison, written in English and with Cree translation by Solomon Ratt. Illustrations by Joseph M. Sanchez, Jim Logan, Kent Monkman, and Nadia Quandemans. This book's published by Thetis Books. Inconvenient Skin is a collection of poetry written in English and translated into Cree. The poems aim to unpack the challenges of the dark side of Canada's history and to clean the wounds so the nation can finally heal. Powerful and thought-provoking, this collection will draw you in and make you reconsider Canada's colonial past and colonial legacy. The cover features the art of Kent Monkman, and the interior features work by Joseph Sanchez, a member of the Indigenous Group of Seven. Very nice. So, we want to welcome to the show both Shane Kwaizan and Solomon Ratt. Congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Now, the author, Shane Kweisen, is a writer, poet, and spoken word artist. He has performed around the globe at universities and at music and at literary festivals. His writing and performance art are vital, witty, and sincere, and he re- reaches the hearts of his audiences with his powerful, powerful verses and has brought the Canadian spoken word movement to the international stage. Kweisen was born in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, and he grew up in Penticton, British Columbia, where he is currently living with and uh, living and working and uh, he has published several books including poetry collection visiting hours stick boy and a novel in verse our deathbeds will be thirsty and to this day for the bullied and beautiful a bruise on light and visiting hours the translator solomon rat was born on the banks of churchill river in a trapper's cabin just north of stanley mission saskatchewan and he went to the prince albert indian residential school and graduated from riverside Collecti- collegiate in port Prince Albert. Uh, he attended the University of Regina, graduated with a BA in English and a BA in linguistics, as well as an MA in English. He has been teaching Cree language and Cree literature at First Nations University in Regina since 1986. He teaches all levels of Cree and Cree literature. Rad is also a writer and a poet, including Woods Cree Stories and Beginning Cree Written as an Introduction to Cree Language Learners, both uh, published by, and they're both published by the University of Regina Press. So, 
um, Shane, congratulations. And uh, yeah, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much, uh, David. Um, huge congratulations to Solomon as well, who I'm actually just meeting for the first time virtually today, despite the fact that we both worked on the book. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of in shock. I'm not really sure what to say uh, other than, you know, Masi Cho uh, really uh, just kind of floored, to be honest. <laughs> You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is a very special Moment of Truth today as we bring you the Code Burt Award for First Nations Inuit and Métis Youth Award Literature Awards. And it is a pleasure to have on the show with us Nancy Cooper, as well as Solomon Ratt and Shane Coison as we present the awards. Stay tuned. At the end of the show, we're going to be giving away some books. But it's so wonderful, and it's so wonderful to hear about all the great work that you guys have done and what you're doing and wow, I'm sure there's some other wonderful stories and, and maybe not so wonderful stories that you have, especially uh, Solomon from the time you went to the uh, residential school that I'm sure we might be able to share at another time. But I'd like to maybe ask you guys a little bit about the process, how you how you went about this. What was that? What was that working relationship like as you worked on this? Well, for me, I think oh, Solomon, do you want to go? No, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, right. I'll talk. I'll speak after you. Okay, that's fair. Um, the book for me came about um, after meeting Greg Younging here in Penticton, who uh, you know started up Thetis. Uh, uh, there was a show at the Penticton Art Gallery that dealt with residential schools, and my past with this has been kind of shaken in that I've you know kind of existed in both worlds. I was raised by white grandparents. Um, my dad uh, was a, a residential school survivor. Mm. And and growing up, I was always kind of trying to reconcile these two parts of my life. And growing up through school, it was very disorienting because you get told just a very little bit about the history. And so the more I delved into it, the more that show brought out of me. And Greg Youngin is really the sort of after speaking with him I was kind of reticent to sort of like should I be interjecting my voice here is it you know taking up space in the conversation and Greg was the person who really encouraged me um, to, to sit down and do this and so very grateful to him for uh, for that encouragement and uh, and telling me to use my voice for this nice nice Solomon yes uh, it was an interesting project when I got asked to to do the translation for this because it is um, about residential schools and uh, and I've had to look at this history my history in the residential schools and my experience in the residential schools and looking through this document it was a real challenge and uh, a refrain kept coming up during that during that translating of this uh, uh, which, which Shane had written it is not love yeah. Number 15. It is not love when an entire culture is told, stop whining, by a country still lining its pockets with the profits of these broken promises. Mm. And, uh, so that hit me because I, I was busy with other projects and I thought, that I, I don't think I could do this. And then, and then well, let's, let's do it. And you know, I thought, we'll do it. Because I am, I have gone to residential school. But I am not a residential school survivor. I do not like that phrase. A survivor is so passive. Mm. Mm. 
I'm a residential school veteran. I survived going through there. I bat- won my battles going through, through residential school. And so looking at this document helped me look at the way things were in the school itself. And I started writing stories. Actually, I had started writing stories about my residential school experience before coming to this document. And it was, it was just a, a, chronic, achieve, a chronic achievement in, in this process, in this journey of mine, when I, when I got this text. And I, 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 really, I really am grateful that I, that I got asked to do this, this book by Shane. It was just a wonderful project. Mm. Right. Well, that's great. Um, now, the other thing, you know, as I look at this book, I see the the cover, you know, and that's uh, that's uh, Ken Monkman is is the is the, the the image that we see on the front of this book. Um, that's great that you guys were able to get Ken Monkman to uh, to uh, you know be part of this. Nancy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the the sort of the artworks definitely stemmed from the show at the Penticton Art Gallery. Paul Crawford um, put together um, a show, I believe it was called Velvet Indians, um, sort of representing these works from, you know, our cultural past of like, you know, Native people, Indigenous people with children with tears in their eyes. These very popular paintings Mm -hmm. back in, you know, um, I don't know, the 50s or so. Um, And the show really sort of you know, it started off in this sort of soft tone and then, you know, made this transition into dealing with residential schools. Um, and so that that became the inspiration for the book. And Paul Crawford and Greg Younging got to credit them for getting Kent Monkman involved in this project, for sure. The fact that we were able to use his brilliant work for the cover of the book just you know, when I when I got that news, my my head kind of hit the ceiling. It's such an amazing, powerful, evocative piece, and uh, I'm just so thrilled that he agreed to it. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, and what are you guys working on? What are you working on for the future? You got anything up your sleeve? I'm always working on something. You know, this past year, living in isolation and during the pandemic, it's it's kind of put that sort of focus back into you know, like writing every day, you know, doing the poetry thing. There's a, there's a collection of poems that are ready. There's probably two collections of poems that are ready to, you know, start to see print. Um, and so we're working toward that. We're doing the, you know, the layouts and things like that. So on my end, that's what I've been focusing on. I've been doing more screenwriting things, things of that nature and teaching, teaching online has really saved me through this whole thing. Um, doing writing workshops uh, with youth uh, uh, about mental health issues surrounding those sort of things. Um, that's been a real boon for my own mental health through this time. So that's what I'm currently working on. Um, I'm curious to hear what Solomon's got going on. Right. Solomon. I'm working on uh, collecting um, a, a series of traditional stories. Mm and in English so I'm writing I've, I've written out a document on this stuff of stories that I used to hear mm. before going to residential school because my parents would would tell me these stories at night time in the winter time and settling in for the night they tell us these traditional stories and these are stories I didn't hear again once I went to the residential school mm. but I learned to read 
and write while I was in school, and I discovered libraries. There I discovered these stories that I used to hear when I was a child, written in English. And I say, hold on, there's something missing here. That's not the story I hear, I heard when I was a child. So I ended up taking these English stories and rewriting them into English and rewriting them into Cree also to recapture these traditional stories for, for, my, for my grandchildren for, for my, for my, and for my, my relatives. And uh, so I've collected these stories and I've been teaching uh, these traditional stories ever since I started teaching, actually, back in the 1980s. Hmm. And now I'm working on collecting these stories as a, as a, as a unit where they could be available to everybody. Because one of the things that we hear about about storytellers is that you have to be a storyteller to tell these stories. That's not true. Any parent is obligated to tell the traditional stories to their children, as my parents did. You know, and I was fortunate. I had two brothers. My older sisters had gone to residential school already in the wintertime, and my mother would start telling us stories. And uh, my older brother and my younger brother would always fall asleep way before I did. So I'd keep the stories that night. And the next night, my mother would ask, uh, where did I left, leave off with the Wisaki stories? And my older brother would say what, what story he heard last. So what happened was I'd hear the stories the previous night and I'd hear these stories again. So it's helped with my memory to remember these stories. And uh, so, so that's what I'm working on. It's a really wonderful project. And uh, so I'm doing this in English and in Cree. And I hope to have it ready by the end of the term, I hope. <laughs> and so I'm also teaching, of course, on, online teaching and doing other translations of other works and stuff. And uh, translation work has been really challenging uh, because uh, a lot of times in translation work, you cannot translate things literally. Mm-hmm. As in, hey, let's hang out. Right. In English, an English idiom, right? Sure. Uh, and uh, try to translate that into Cree sounds really funny. Which means literally, let's hang outside, outside the window or something like that. You know, so don't, don't translate. And especially harder to translate are verbs, I mean, our poems, because they operate in imagery. And so, Translating has been, like translating this book has been quite a challenge to try to capture what Shane was doing with, with his English word and trying to capture that same thing in the Cree language. And it's always a challenge. And I love challenges like that. I am so glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about the translation part of it because I know how difficult it is uh, in that translation of the languages. Uh, that must be very time and painstaking to do. Yeah, you have to move away from translating, actually, and into interpretation. Ah, right. It's a, it's a ah, two, two process. Yeah, yeah. You literally translate things. Yes. It sounds funny, so you right. have to go into interpretation. So right. What do you mean by that? Yeah, oh, nicely said. Uh, we have one class set of each of the three books to give away, and they're up for grabs for any teachers, librarians, and community advocates that are listening and are interested. And you can get them by going to and emailing info at code.ngo. So if you go to info at code.ngo, by April 2nd, you can get uh, one of these three copies that we're giving away right here on the show. So I, I just want to 
say congratulations to uh, all of the authors and uh, the books that are going to be going out to hundreds of schools and libraries across the country and uh, young people that will be reading them for years to come. And I want to say uh, Nyawa, Miigwech, and Wanishi to all of you for taking part in the show today. And, uh, you know, a big, big, big thank you uh, to, to just being part of this. And, and we're so grateful here at Element FM that you were able to do this with us and we're able to give them away. So thank you and Chimigwech to all of you. It's been a pleasure to have them on the show with us today. You've been listening to Element FM as we've been giving away the special BERT Awards right here on the show. What a pleasure. I had with me on the show Nancy Cooper, as well as Shane Coison and Solomon Ratt. So, Code has one of three sets of all three books up for grabs. So, if any teachers, librarians, or community advocates are listening and are interested, please email info at code.ngo by April 2nd. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth today. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.